Welcome to the newest episode of the Up and Coming Dog Trainer. This is Katie McKnight, and today I'm here to discuss why dog trainers should have policies and procedures in place. Dog trainers should have policies and procedures in place to protect their interests, the dogs they train, and the human client. It also ensures the human client is on the same page as the trainer. So many online discussions focus on the importance of making training enjoyable for the dog. And we totally agree with this statement, and we teach our students at ISCDT to train dogs using methods that prevent stress. But training guidelines, they just can't end there. There should be more discussion on keeping the dog owner happy too. A few years ago, I went to a doctor who charged $100 for weekly visits. I have insurance and I wasn't thrilled with the out-of-network fee, but I agreed to it. And at the end of my third visit, I went to pay and was informed that there was a $10 fee for credit card payments. I'd like to know when that policy began. Had they informed me of this new policy before my appointment, I would have brought cash. They did not give me that option. Instead, they just made the change without prior notification. And the way they handled this change in policy angered me. Now, while I could have bought cash moving forward to avoid the $10 fee, I worried the doctor would continue to implement additional policy changes without providing prior notice. So how does my problem pertain to dog owners? Dogs will happily abandon a walking lesson and switch to a place lesson. They don't care what you do as long as you spend time with them. The human client, on the other hand, the one who hired and paid you, may not be as forgiving when policy changes without notice. No one wants to hire a dog trainer only to learn afterward that the company policy does not align with their beliefs or lifestyle. When dog trainers have policies and procedures in place, owners know what to expect when they sign up for your services. So where should you post policies and procedures? Well, you can choose to include them on your website. Dog trainer policies and procedures should also be detailed in your dog training service agreement. And during the evaluation, it's a good idea to discuss dog training policies and procedures with your clients. And with some creativity, you can work those policies into the conversation while discussing your dog training style. The next question that's asked is, what is the difference between policies and procedures? A policy is telling somebody that when they're going to cancel an appointment, the client must provide 24 hours notice. The procedure says that the client may call, text, or email the company to cancel their appointment. So again, the policy is telling them, listen, you have to give me a minimum of 24 hours notice if you're going to cancel. And the procedure says, here's how you can cancel. Here's my phone number, here's my email address, but you need to get in touch with me one of these ways to let me know. So let's start talking about policies that establish boundaries because we do have to establish boundaries. Sometimes I get calls from clients as early at 5.30 or 6 a.m. in the morning and as late as 11 p.m. I've also had them on holidays. So I'm gonna say that I do deal with aggressive dogs. And I 
totally feel for families who have aggressive dogs in their home. It breaks my heart when a family welcomes a dog and they're so excited only to discover weeks or months later that their dog has a serious problem. And I honestly do worry for these families and the dog that they can get it right and that the dog will be able to stay safely and happily in the home. But while I do feel compassion and empathy for these people, it doesn't mean that they can stomp all over my life. They still need to pay for dog training when the bill is due. They need to show up on time for lessons and they should not be calling me on Christmas morning to ask me how to handle a pushy family member. Well, I want to help them. Christmas morning is, you know, taking advantage a little. All right. So the following policies should be established. So this way, your boundaries or the boundaries are not crossed. So the first is payment plans. Do you require a deposit when clients sign up? And when is the balance due? Most trainers expect payment at the first lesson. But if you decide to break down dog training fees into payments, that's fine. You just need to be clear when the payments are due. The next are payment options. You can accept Venmo, PayPal, Zelle, credit cards, cash, and checks. Offer payment options on front so there's no confusion when the payment is due. The one payment type that I don't like to take are checks. So I'm always a little disappointed when the person is writing the checkout, even though at the evaluation, I told them we accept PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, credit cards, and cash. All right, next are refunds. Dog trainers typically do not provide refunds. So whether you decide to issue refunds or not, just make sure your refund policy is clearly described on your website and in your dog trainer contract. The next up is cancellation policies or lack thereof. My biggest pet peeve are repeated cancellations. Not only does it affect my wallet, repeatedly rescheduling appointments suggests that the client is not taking training seriously enough. So you need to decide if you will allow cancellations. And if so, how much notice do you require? How should your clients contact you to cancel? And what fees or policies will you impose when they do cancel? Which brings us to clients who are no-shows. There is nothing more frustrating than showing up to someone's house for a dog training lesson to find out that the family forgot about that lesson. So what is your policy for clients who don't show up for their dog training lessons? Will you charge a rescheduling fee or will they lose the lesson? Like I said, no shows just take money out of our pocket. So you didn't show up to this lesson. Now I don't get paid. And now I have to reschedule you in another spot where I could have put another client. It's annoying. Let's flip the script. What steps do you take to remind your client about upcoming lessons? Because we should remind our clients that an appointment is coming up because let's face it, we all forget at one point or another. So going back to no-shows, make sure that your policy about no-shows and the procedures you take to remind people are outlined for your client. Lateness. How will you handle a client who shows up late to a class? If I am five minutes late to an appointment, I make up that time by staying five minutes later than scheduled. But when a client is late, they miss out on that part of the lesson. 
In that case, the lesson ends on time, so I arrive promptly for my next appointment. Let's move on to media releases. Trainers like to showcase their work, and you should. It's good marketing. But rather than asking your client every single time that you want to record part of the lesson, get permission from clients beforehand by including media releases in your contract. Now we're going to move on to something that is a very sore subject in the dog training world, and that is the guarantee. We've discussed guarantees in a previous post. Dog trainers should never guarantee their work. The dog owner's commitment to training determines the outcome. You cannot determine it. You can teach the dog owner everything they need to know about training their dog, but it's up to them to do the work and actually train that dog. Now that said, you can guarantee great customer service. How do you want your clients to contact you? Clients can text or email me seven days a week. I do not offer an option for clients to call me directly because I would never arrive to a dog training lesson on time if I had to speak to each and every person with whom I train. So if clients choose to call, their call goes to the office and I return the call when I have sufficient time to dedicate to their issue. I want my clients to feel valued and not rushed and therefore I do only have a text and email policy. And after a certain hour, I put my phone away until morning. I used to respond to messages all night long, but it wasn't fair to my family, nor was it good for my mental health. Unless the dog or family is in danger, the response can wait until morning. Decide how you want your clients to contact you and include hours in which they can expect to hear back from you. Hours of service. At the evaluation, let clients know which days and time frames you train. Every prospective client is informed of the days and hours that I train. If a potential client can only train on Sundays or Mondays, which are my day off, I refer them to another trainer in our company. We do not want to work on our days off. We do not want to work outside the hours that we set for ourselves because at first, while you don't mind it, after a while, you can burn out and burnout is a serious condition in the dog training world. Besides the fact, if you work too many hours, you can make mistakes that lead you to get bit. Now, let's talk about sticking to your appointment schedule. I recommend that you plan out your hours of training and stick to that schedule. So here's an example for me. On Tuesdays, I train 11 to noon, 12.30 to 1.30, 4.30 to 5.30, 6 to 7, and 7.30 to 8.30. If a client is offered a 4.30 lesson, I cannot accept a request to meet them at 5. Changing that appointment to 5 p.m. prevents me from getting to my 6 o'clock lesson on time. So if I change it, it means I lose out on one lesson that day. So instead of altering my schedule for them, I offer them a later time. And likewise, I do not take requests for 9.30 a.m. lessons. We all need time to take care of our personal obligations and to get some rest. And as I just mentioned, failing to provide me time can lead to burnout. All right, let's move on to policies and procedures for safety and to lower the risk of lawsuits. As I mentioned earlier, 
Establishing policies protects our clients and their dogs. When it comes to safety, dog trainers have policies and procedures covering that area in their dog training contracts. So the first is the client's involvement in training. If the client does not work with their dog, they will not reach their dog training goals. Describe the amount of work you'd expect from your clients each day and or week. Required vaccines. Whether you offer group lessons, board and train, or invite clients to practice in public places, dogs should be vaccinated. Let clients know up front what vaccines are required for your dog training classes. And what about unaltered dogs? Who wants to worry about one client dog impregnating another while under your care? Certainly not me. Another concern is the unaltered male who escapes your property in search of a nearby female in heat. Implement rules on unaltered males and females attending group lessons, coming to your home or your facility for training and or training in public locations. Even though in public locations dogs should be on leash, they do sometimes get loose. All right, safety procedures. I require that dogs be on leash when I arrive for an in-home evaluation. I do not want any dogs approaching me before I've had the opportunity to read their body language and determine if it's safe. I also require dogs who exhibit aggression toward me during the evaluation or those who have a bite record to wear a muzzle during training. This rule protects you, the dog, and your client. So what safety procedures will you have in place? Something to think about. All right, for our group dog trainers, let's discuss procedures relating to behavior in class. An aggressive, reactive, or unruly dog can ruin a class for dogs and their owners, and this can prevent people from enrolling for future training classes with you. Another negative behavior that affects group lessons are unruly children running around or snacking while they're sitting on the training floor. Young kids can be rough to have in your group lesson. So include policies for children and dogs attending your group lessons. So how do you feel about dress code? I cringe when people train dogs in sandals, flip-flops, or even worse, barefoot. On a good day, I would trip while wearing flip-flops. Now, we are doing turns, walking backwards, all while training and paying attention to the dog. Do you want to risk a twisted ankle or a dog bite to the foot? Because that hurts. Choosing the type of footwear you require during your lessons is not a bad idea. There are plenty of places that I've gone where they say that you have to have closed shoes and that you cannot wear sandals or flip-flops. And I don't think it's a bad idea to put it in for your dog training. So how do you feel about shorts? I would never train a dog in shorts. I wear jeans all summer just to make sure that there's some sort of protection for my legs should a dog bite me. Now, it's difficult to tell a client how to dress in their own home, but for group lessons or even board and train visits, it's feasible. What articles of clothing would you ban from your training class? And when it comes to dogs, what tools will you allow in your class and which will be prohibited? These are things to consider. Approaching other dogs. Will you allow dogs in your class to approach one another? 
If you teach puppy classes, your answer is going to be yes. After all, clients sign up for puppy classes so they can socialize their young dogs. But how about lessons for older dogs? As dogs mature, they become more selective with a style of play. It's a good idea to allow dogs to meet on. Do you think it's a good idea to allow dogs to meet on leash? Or is it safer to train without dog-on-dog contact? And what are your thoughts on adults and children interacting with other dogs in your group class? How well do you know the dogs in your class? What triggers them? So allowing this interaction on your watch may cause you that watch and much more. It's something to consider. And again, as I always tell people, a dog could be fine with 10 interactions during one visit. But if something triggers that dog, the 11th interaction can be a disaster. All right, now we're going to move on. I want you to think of the future when you have employees working for you. What employee policies and procedures should you have in place? Well, here's a few. Hours and overtime pay. How are you going to work that out? The rate of pay. The dress code. Lunch and breaks. Rules of conduct. Vacation, medical. Even though hiring a new employee may be way down the road for you, it's good to think about these policies and have them in place rather than hiring the employee and then coming up with the rules after. They may not like that. Much like children, not too many adults like to be told, you can't or we will not allow it. Your written policies and procedures should be short and clearly written. And when explaining policies to your client, add some creativity. So this way they don't feel like you're telling them, you can't, I won't, because that could be a turnoff. Here's an example. When I tell clients, oh, you can text me, but I don't accept calls. I would never say, text me, don't call. Instead, I say, clients may text me seven days a week. I don't take calls when I train because it isn't fair for me to show up late to your lesson because I'm speaking to another client. I'm happy to schedule phone conversations during my break, but I do prefer that you text me. And here's another example. Rather than saying, don't interact with other dogs in this group, instead you can ask that no one interact with other dogs during your group lesson. For some dogs, participating in group lessons is horrifying. We wanna raise their confidence for their owner and forcing them or allowing them to interact with a stranger can hinder the outcome for that dog and its owner. So again, let's not be the no person posing policies. Explaining policies beforehand demonstrates respect and compassion for your clients. So I don't want you to think that having policies in place makes you the, the bad cop or the no person. Having policies and explaining them beforehand demonstrates respect and compassion for your clients, but it also helps clients understand why these policies are in place. First of all, it demonstrates respect and compassion for your clients, and it also helps them understand why you have put those policies in place. So our last piece of advice is that you revisit policies. And the reason you do that is because laws are amended, business models evolve, and your situation may change. Review your policies and procedures each year to make sure that they, one, achieve your desired results, 
Two, remain consistent with rules, regulations, and current training practices. Three, are clearly written and consistently followed. If those policies do not serve you well and keep control over your daily operation, then you need to adjust them or add and delete them. So after listening to this podcast, what policies do you have in place for your dog training business? We'd love to hear about them. I recommend that you have an attorney help you create that contract. But if you'd like to go to our blog at iscdt.com, Why Dog Trainers Have Policies and Procedures, you can see samples of policies and procedures. So that's all we have for today. I hope that this encourages you to get your policies and procedures in place. Have a great day. Want to learn dog training? ISCDT can help. Their online dog training program has you working with dogs under the supervision of a certified dog trainer and mentor. Their in-person dog training exposes you to an array of dog breeds, personalities, and age. You'll see what it's like to work with dogs and their owners. ISCDT, the program ranked top 10 in dog trainer programs by multiple sources. Check them out at ISCDT.com. 